0: In the first or fourth Star Wars film, it's the same film, right? But you just order them differently. I'm talking about the first one that came out in the theaters, which now apparently is four. Anyway, in that one, you remember there was this Death Star thing? You recall that? Way, way back, 30 years ago, there was this Death Star. And Luke and his buddies destroyed the Death Star, and we thought, woo and it's all great. and. And then the movie left us on that note where there was this big celebration, and everybody was getting awards, and Wookiees were roaring, and it oh, big celebration. I don't know if you followed the whole Star Wars saga, but it was kind of a premature kind of a thing, wasn't it? <laughs> Right? I mean, they were celebrating all, over all this like, like they had won the big, and it was all done, and then the empire strikes back, and it, and, it, and it goes on from there for 30 years, and nine films total, and all the rest of it, and we all got really, really tired by the time it was over. You and I live in a different universe than that one, uh, that being a fictitious universe, this being a genuine universe, this is the only genuine universe, no matter what anybody says, and it is the universe that God created And in that universe, we can say that the rebel cause, if we're the rebels, is winning. Jesus is notching victory upon victory upon victory. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God in Christ, his kingdom is advancing in the world. And yet, sometimes we don't feel like celebrating. Because sometimes we kind of see the big picture, and we see that empires are striking back, and there's dangers, and there's... Tribulation, the Bible says we're going to go through tribulation in order to enter into the kingdom of God. So we see all that, and sometimes we we may cheat ourselves out of the right to celebrate. Over the next couple uh, sermons, I was going to say the next couple weeks, but I will be out of the pulpit for two Sundays in a row. That's unusual. Uh, if you want to pray for me, pray that Debbie and I both can get two negative COVID tests between now and the time we set on the ship, or they don't put us, they won't put us on. But anyway. Um, Over the next two sermons that I do, we're going to be looking at what we could call the Samaria campaign. That is, as the gospel is brought there to Samaria, you'll remember we've we've talked about it almost every week. Acts chapter one verse eight. You have that big picture that Jesus gave them. You're going to get the Holy Spirit. You you stay here until that happens in power. Then you in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And we're talking about that next phase. In the expansion of the kingdom, and that's an amazing thing that we're going to be looking at as it goes to Samaria, uh, and w- I believe that as as believers, we ought to get pre celebra- uh, ce- celebratory. We ought to we ought to have a lot of joy as we look back and celebrate what happened when the when the gospel made it to Samaria. That may feel very remote to you, but it's part of the kingdom, and we can look back historically and go, "That was a really cool thing." And at the same time, we can recall and remind ourselves that we are still in that Acts chapter 1, verse 8 scenario. We're just, we're just further out. But that, as that, that original, uh, if you will, expansion into Samaria, as that encourages us, we should be encouraged about what it's doing today. Now, I would have done this all in one sermon, but it's pretty hefty. There's quite a bit here in the Samaria campaign, and there's a nice little kind of midway point. And here's how the midway point in this story is going to work. The kingdom is expanding. Christ is victorious throughout, but in the first half, it's obvious. In the first half of the story of Samaria, it is a blowout. It is clearly victory. As we get into the second half of this, we get kind of what looks like a setback. We kind of get the empire striking back thing. We get a little bit of pushback from the evil one, but it's still victory, and we have a right to celebrate that victory. Here's the big idea. Celebrate that the gospel of the kingdom is advancing. And no, this is not a sermon today that, that, that may be highly applicable if you're looking for something of, how can I have a happier marriage or better children? Probably need to get new children. Um, <laughs> You know, it's, it's not that kind of sermon. It, it, is, it, it should draw us into the big picture. As Christians, we should be able to get excited about the advancement of the kingdom. So there are four occasions to celebrate. First of all, celebrate when faithful servants take the gospel to the lost. Yeah? Does that jazz you up at all when you, when you see that happening? It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Who's Philip? Who's Philip? Do you remember this Philip? And it's not one of the original 12 disciples, Philip, that we're talking about here. Who is Philip? Well, he's one of the seven, isn't he? He's he's one. He comes right in the list. He comes right after Stephen. You all remember Stephen? He's the one that they just got through stoning to death for blasphemy, and and the church is, is scattered. Philip's the second one in the list. And Philip remains for some time. We we, we will see in Acts 21 that he's still around. He's called Philip the evangelist there. You say, well, maybe he's not the same one, because this other guy, he was like a deacon. And now you're going to call him, look at the verse. It's in Acts 21, so we're out, what, 12, 13, I can't count, chapters out into the the, uh, future here, but... It said, on the next day, Paul and Luke, that is, we, uh, departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, you say, is it really the same guy, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. So, an interesting progression in the story of, of Philip. I like Philip. You know who Philip reminds me of? He reminds me of Caleb. How many remember Caleb in the Old Testament? Caleb and Joshua, they were the only ones that kind of had the chutzpah to say, let's go in and take the land. And much, much later, after you've had the 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness, Joshua and Caleb are allowed to go in. And Caleb, at the age of 85, do you remember this story? He comes to Joshua and he's like, you know how God promised us the whole land, basically. And and, uh, you know that hill country that nobody wants to go up into, the one with the Anakim that are supposed to be unbeatable? kind of like trying to take Afghanistan. It's just a hard, hard place. He goes, yeah, I I think I want to go take that. 85 years old. He wants to go up into the hardest place possible, up into the hills to take that. And that's, see, I think that's kind of the the thing with Philip. And here's why I say that, or part of why I say that. If you think about it, do we have any record in the Old Testament that says an angel came to Caleb to tell him that? Mm Mm-mm. What about Philip? Does it say an angel came to Philip and said, Philip, I want you to go down to, you be the guy. What what information are both of these men acting upon? They were both acting upon the promises of God, that God had said this is how the kingdom is going to spread. You guys are going to go in, you're going to take the land. You are going to begin in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And and Philip just looked at it and said, okay, Might as well be me. And add to that that the fact that Philip is one of seven, which is now one of six. You see where I'm going with that? He's just seen Stephen stoned to death for preaching the gospel. And what's his response to that? I'll be your huckleberry, you know. I'll I'll go down there. I'll I'll go down and preach the gospel. I have no problem with that if that's what God. He. How many remember the story Pat Tillman? How many remember who Pat Tillman was? He was an NFL quarterback. 2002, he enlists back into. I think he'd already been in the service, perhaps, but he goes into the army and he got killed in 2002. So he would be like Stephen in my analogy. Philip would be like all those other NFL quarterbacks that quit the NFL after Tillman got killed and then went and also served. Who was that again? I'm trying to remember which NFL quarterback went into the Army after Tillman did it. Did anybody follow suit? No, all the NFL quarterbacks are like, that was really stupid. I am never going, I'm never going to go near that. Philip sees this with Stephen and he goes, yes, I'll go. He He's heard the story. We're going to leave Jerusalem. We're going to go to Samaria. It might as well be me. I will take the gospel to them. He's a man that Paul would say had blessed feet. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. He takes the gospel there, and we should get excited about that. When somebody is willing and has a heart and has the courage to take the gospel to people who are lost, that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? We should get jazzed about that. We should be excited. We've got a young lady in our congregation who is, we can't even say where she's going, can we? We're not allowed to say because she's going somewhere where it's an unreached people in a hostile part of the world. Just just a little slip of a gal. And she's like, yeah, I want, I want to go there. I want to, I want to do that. Think of how exciting it can be for us. I know we're not in a land of unreached people per se. I mean, there are people that are unreached, but we're not dealing with an unreached people group by definition, but there are people that don't know the gospel that live around us, and how many would like to see some of the Afghani refugees end up in Great Bend? Can anybody make that happen? Anybody uh, know the town fathers well enough to get that worked out? Some of you are like, what? Do we really... Wouldn't that be cool? You know, you have, there's thousands of them that are, that, that are coming here. Wouldn't it be great if, if hundreds of them came? We'd have some new restaurants in town, which wouldn't hurt us right now. And we would have a whole, wouldn't that be exciting? You know, a year from now, we got 20 Afghani Christians here in the, in the congregation. That, that, that would be exciting, the kingdom is We can't describe or prescribe how the kingdom is going to advance, but advance it will. Okay, the second thing, second occasion, celebrate when the gospel captures people's attention. I haven't exactly mentioned yet who the Samaritans were, so let me just remind you of who those guys were. I could back up and I could go into a long history on this. But just remember that there were two kingdoms back in the day after David and then Solomon. Then you had this split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom, you had some good kings. The northern kingdom, you never did. <laughs> and they were carried off into captivity. I almost said cafeteria. That would be a better place. No, they They were carried off into into captivity in 722 BC, and then the Assyrians that had carried them off resettled the northern kingdom of Israel with just a mixture, and there were some Jews that were brought in, but there were people from all over, and it became this just mixed bag. It was kind of partly sort of quasi-Judaism, but it wasn't really. The Jews didn't consider them legitimate Jews. In fact, New Testament scholars will look at this and they'll say, well, is this technically the moment where Gentiles were reached? Because they're in, they're in that in-between state. It's like, you can't really call them Jews, you can't really call them Gentiles. But anyway, here's the thing. On paper, they were not great candidates for hearing the gospel. Had Christ not said this is where it's going to go as it expands outward, they would not have looked like the kind of people you would want to try to take the gospel to because they hated Jews. <laughs> even though they were sort of, you know, they were descendants of Jacob, they, they didn't like the Jews at all. The Jews thought they were the chosen people. What do you think the Samaritans thought? They thought they were the chosen. You remember that whole thing with Jesus and the woman at the well? She was a Samaritan and she tried to get him into an argument about who the chosen people were and where you were to worship God. They, on paper, they didn't really want to listen to Jewish evangelists coming to them. But Philip knew that that is where the gospel was supposed to go. So he goes and he preaches the gospel. He proclaims Christ. I love that simple way of saying it. There's so many ways in the book of Acts that Luke describes bringing the gospel. Here he talks about proclaiming Christ. Look at it. It says, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. And saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Two things. Two things happened that caused them to pay attention. The first of these is they heard. What did they hear? In that first verse we read. That that he was proclaiming Christ to them, that he was preaching the gospel. That's what they were hearing, and then with their eyes, they were seeing these signs that God was doing among them, miraculous signs, much like what Stephen would have. We weren't even told fully what Stephen, We just knew that Stephen did signs and wonders. Correct? You remember that? which were just like the ones that the apostles had done, which turned out to be just like the ones that Jesus had done. You have those things that we expect. You have the driving out of demons. You have the healing of the sick. I think, we would, I think we would pay attention too, wouldn't we, if we were in darkness and didn't know the Lord, but all of a sudden we see these demon-possessed people and they just start shrieking, and the demons, you know, yeah, I don't think you see demons leave, but then you see the, the result after where these people are, as the demoniac at the garrisons clothed and in their right mind. All at once, they're lucid and clear and normal. We would notice that, wouldn't we? Or when the lame, I don't know why it's just lame and paralyzed. I, I went down that rabbit trail for a little while. Could not, I cannot tell you why, in particular, it mentions lame and paralyzed, because there's so many other things that it could have been, but that's what God did. He, he raised them up, much like that guy and maybe this is why, I don't know, but the similarity between what God did in Jerusalem versus what he does in Samaria. Remember the man that was lame from birth, that, that lay there at the gate of, uh, that was called beautiful, and now this almost the exact same thing is happening. What we see is the sovereign might and power of God working through his obedient servant and as this happens, and as the gospel is proclaimed, the gospel gains a hearing. And that is, that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing that we can celebrate. Do you believe this still happens today? Does God still get people's attention? You know, maybe because of where we're at as a nation and some of the things we're going through, maybe, maybe we feel like we're living in that time where men's hearts are growing cold. But, but God is still at work. God is still getting people's attention. Sometimes it's happening behind iron curtains of sorts. I know we don't technically have the old, good old-fashioned USSR iron curtain, but we've we've got nations like North Korea and China and Iran and soon Afghanistan again, sad. And yet God is reaching people. He's gaining their attention. I believe he might be doing that even in places like Great Bend, Kansas. The other day, one of our young men that uh, is part of a small group that, that I'm engaged with, let us know. He said, man, this something really neat happened. He said, somebody reached out to me, an old classmate. They'd seen posts on, on Facebook that I'd placed there, and, and it's not like trolling. He doesn't get on there and, you know, shake his fist and say, you know, really angry things. He, he posts things about the Lord, and this person reached out and said, you know, I just, I've been looking at your posts, and I'm, kind, I'm just kind of lost, and I don't I don't know what I believe and he reached out to him and said tell me about that do we have the faith to believe that God is still getting people's attention in Great Bend Kansas do you believe that that, that could be true of your neighbors and your friends and, and the people that you work with we sh- we should believe that we should celebrate it when it happens the third occasion is celebrate when the gospel brings joy now the gospel should obviously always bring joy It said, so there was joy, sorry, (laughs) much joy in that city. There's something just in that little simple declarative sentence that is lovely when you you read it. The gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ came to that city in Samaria. Now, what city in Samaria was it? It's a funny thing. Luke says it like we should know exactly, and, and Bible scholars argue over what city in Samaria. I don't know. Does it matter? It doesn't matter. It's, it was that city. It was that city. But, there, but there's this powerful movement, this powerful powerful persuasion of God. It's as though even before they fully understood the gospel, before they fully decided whether or not they're on board with it, that it just it, it sounds like good news. They hear news of a savior, of a lord, a, a, of a king, and despite all the cultural baggage... Think of all the resistance there should have been. Like, hell, you know, who do these Jews think they are coming in here telling us about a Messiah? They wouldn't know a Messiah if he came up. and. But no, God just brings that gospel to their hearts, and, and they feel joy. Frankly, this reminds me of two different stories in the book of Luke. You guys remember Luke, so I probably won't have to really remind you of where I'm going on this. For those who don't know, we went through the whole book of Luke for a couple of years, but... Do you remember the one about Zacchaeus, first of all? You remember the joy of the story of Zacchaeus? Young guy, well, not young guy, little guy, not young, small, small stature. Jesus coming through his city. He runs up and shinies up the, the sycamore tree, and, and, uh, and Jesus sees him. Do you remember all the joy of that story? Look at what it says. It says, And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And then you, when you read the rest of the story, it just describes all that joy. He is a man just alive with joy because Jesus has come to him. Even even before a person has counted the cost or fully grasped the invitation here of the gospel, this is what's happening in Samaria. They just respond with great joy. Philip preached Christ to them like Zacchaeus. In just that moment of having Jesus offered to them and hearing the gospel for the first time, that's the response. It, ge- is, it generates joy. Shouldn't we expect joy from the gospel? If people really hear it, if, if they've never understood, if, if they know themselves to be in darkness and sin, and then the gospel gets proclaimed, even before they fully responded in, a, in an intelligent way, you might say, it, it produces joy. But here's the other passage it reminds me of also in the book of Luke. It's about the sower that went forth to sow seeds and some fell on various kinds of ground which represent different kinds of hearts and the condition of people's hearts. It says, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in times of testing fall away. You see, there can be a kind of joy at the initial preaching of the gospel that might look like the joy of salvation. And it's not. Not genuinely, not savingly, not persistently through to the very end. But instead, it's it's like that, that feeling that people get when they see a sunset. You know, how many people that don't know God if they witness something just beautiful like that, for a moment may feel something spiritual, lofty. You could have an avowed atheist go and hear Handel's Messiah when it's performed by just a really, really skilled and large choir. And when everybody stands up at the Hallelujah Chorus, that atheist is probably going to jump up to his feet too and go, yeah, ooh, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. It feels so good, doesn't it? But nothing's actually changed. It's just, it's just that feeling. The faith that saves is not just that which feels a certain joy at the initial outset of the message, but it is that faith which perseveres and continues to the end. We're going to see kind of evidence of perhaps both of those kinds of joy in the passage when we get through both sections of it, so I'll just kind of leave you to, to uh, think about that for next time, but... Should that discourage us? Does it discourage you to think that there can be a joy at the initial preaching of the gospel and that that joy is not always followed by genuine faith? Should that make us cynical? And I would say to you, no. We don't want to be like Pharisees. It's so easy to, you know, you hear about some celebrity, which I think is always a mistake that they should be throwing these things. You almost feel like they're getting thrown into the meat grinder, but some celebrity will come out and confess Christ. And, and those of us my age who've been around for a while and have witnessed a lot of these, it's very easy for us to be cynical and go, well, I'll believe it, like if in five years that person's still professing faith in Christ. It's very easy to get, to get cynical like that uh, when it happens. It's kind of like when you buy those tires, guys, that are, say, 50,000-mile guarantee. How many, when you buy the 50,000-mile guarantee, are like, huh, yeah, I'll, at 49.9K, we'll talk. If there's still tread on there, I'll believe it when I see it. And, and we can be that way about it, but the truth of the matter is there is reason to, to celebrate and be glad when we see this kind of joy meet the gospel. But you say, but you just got through saying, you know, not everyone has genuine faith. Someone tested are going to fall away it's true it's true but but we have a message that is a joy what did the what did the the angels say to the shepherds i br- fear not i bring you glad tidings of good news A joyful joyful news it will be to all people of great joy who knew that the gospel would be proclaimed to samaritans before Jesus said it, that is. <laughs> After Acts 1:8, they really should have known, shouldn't they? But who knew? Who could have imagined that the gospel would come to a city in Samaria and that just there would be this wholesale response of joy? How many of you, by rights, should have ever experienced the joy of the gospel? We were dead in our trespasses and sin. How did the gospel get there? It's been centuries and the gospel's come to the Angles and the Saxons and the Utes and and, and the Germans and and, and the Native Americans. You could just go down the list of how that gospel has gotten through so many cultures and peoples and it came to you and it brought you joy. Celebrate with that. Celebrate the joy of of that gospel coming to the lost. Finally, celebrate when the gospel leads to conversion. When it leads to conversions, by conversion, that's a, a kind of a biblical slash theological concept. What is a conversion? How many have heard the term? Conversion, kind of a, the root idea of it means to change, to change, to go from one thing to being something else. It's used in Acts fifteen three, but it means that somebody goes from being a non-Christian to being a Christian. It's that process of what happens uh, when a person goes from being an unbeliever to a believer. Uh, generally speaking, we recognize a conversion by someone professing faith in Jesus Christ and experiencing baptism. Those are two outward things that we expect to see when a person is genuinely, genuinely, generally, genuinely I can say it, genuinely come to faith in Christ. Before we see that this is the case, uh, Luke introduces a fly in the ointment. How do we know it's a fly in the ointment? Well, the, there's a little tip-off with the first word that starts into this section. It says, but. <laughs> you know, we been, oh, this stuff's really good. But, uh, uh, but, <laughs> but, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in this city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. So we're talking about Simon. How many have heard of Simon before? He's kind of infamous. Um, Simon Magus is how he's referred to in, in, uh, in the ancient literature. He was a magician, which meant what? What's a magician? Well, take your pick. He could be a magician a la, you know, pen and teller. Sleight of hand, one of those kind of guys. Or he was Harry Potter. I don't know. I mean, he, was, he, he could have been in the dark arts, for all I know. He could have been harnessing demonic uh, powers. He could have just been really, really good at tricking people. I don't, I don't know. Actually, nobody actually knows that. It reminds you of the, uh, the magicians in Egypt. Do you remember them? When Moses went down and he threatened uh, Pharaoh, and he, and he says, let my people go, and then the, then the plagues, he starts, you know, using the staff and whatnot, and the, the different plagues happen. Up through the first several, the magicians in Egypt are, ab- are able to actually copy them. Weird, right? When you read that in the Bible the first time, you're like, say, what? They did what? <laughs> and I think, was, was it the frogs or the flies that, that, I think it was the flies where they went, nope, can't do that one. Which I've never understood. It's like, that's the one you have problem with is flies? I can draw flies. I draw flies a lot, but, um, but it's worse than that. It's worse than the fact that he was a magician. He confused them with his power to think that he was something great, even almost semi-divine, as it were. It says they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. So everybody, everybody, even people with a good brain, good head on their shoulders, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. Now, you can hardly blame the Samaritans. They didn't have the truth they, they, they followed God in some form, but, but not in, in the form of truth. They didn't have the way of salvation. Jesus said that to the woman at the well. It says, um, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So this had been going on. How good was this guy? Because anybody, a halfway decent magician can fool you for 20 minutes. A snake oil salesman back in the days of the West, right? They'd ride into town, and they, they, would, they, they, just, they were good talkers. And they, and they would have testimonials about people that had gotten cured by their snake oil. And then a day later, they packed up and they were gone because they knew people were going to figure out in a very short period of time that there was nothing to it. But Simon was good. He was bad. He was good at being bad. I mean, he, he had fooled them for a long period of time. I'll go into this uh, more next time, but Luke wants us to understand what actually occurs here. It is an amazing turnaround. These people had been under the influence of this guy in, in a very powerful and exclusive way. And then Philip comes in, and he preaches the gospel, and God affirms it with signs, and there is just a complete break. Just a complete break. It's like The Wizard of Oz. How many remember? Anybody ever see The Wizard of Oz? It's a very old movie now. Has anybody actually watched it? Yes? Some. Oh, I see a young hand there. That's good. Okay, so you remember the moment with the, the Wicked Witch of the West, and she's, you know, how about a little fire scarecrow? And she sets the the, the scarecrow on fire, and, and Dorothy takes the water and misses the scarecrow, or catches maybe a little. I hope he cut the arm. But anyway, catches the, the witch, and ah, I'm melting, and... And at that moment, Dorothy expects to be just mobbed, stoned to death by by all of her minions, but what happens the minute she's gone? They start singing, ding-dong, the wicked witch is dead. And it's that kind of, of a moment here. And not only are the people just turned on a dime to follow the gospel, but even Simon himself was converted, outwardly at least. He shows the outward signs of conversion. Now, whether that was genuine or or, or false, we'll consider that next time. But I want you to look at this. It says, "But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed." Think for a minute just how beautiful that was. Think how amazing this, and, and that's what Luke keeps, he keeps using this word, amazing. Simon had amazed them, but, but then the gospel and the impact, the conversions, the number of people that, that step forward and say, yes, I, I am trusting in Christ and allow themselves to be baptized is absolutely off the chart. In a matter of days, the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and turned things around, and people are willing to, To be baptized in the name of Jesus and identified with him. They went from being deluded by false religion and fake magicians to worshiping the one true God as proclaimed in the gospel. Even the magician himself gets baptized. Do you think that happens today? Do you think that happens today? Can God get a hold of a whole city? Can the gospel be proclaimed? Can people's attention be drawn? Can people be brought to the gospel and change and go from from darkness into light? The answer is yes. The gospel of the kingdom is advancing. Men and women are being converted. They are turning from their old ways, the ways of sin and sinful idolatries, to trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone, and they are becoming his followers, and they're even being baptized Publicly to show forth that they have come to faith. They're turning from demonic powers and superstitions to the living God. It still happens. Now, next time we're going to look at the flip side of this. As I said, the first half, it's just victory, isn't it? Everything we see in the first half of this story is just obvious, plain, clear victory. The gospel is proclaimed. People are converted. It all looks Amazing. Next time things are, we're going to see the fly in the ointment. Simon's a problem. <laughs> and, uh, and I will tell you next time whether or not he was truly saved. And the answer, I'll just, I'll preview it. Absolutely, 100%, maybe, is um, what I'm going to say about, <laughs> about that. Um, but in every case, his kingdom is on the move. There are many things as Christians that we should take to heart, many things in terms of practical living and so forth, but man, we need to get a hold of the joy of the gospel of the kingdom because ultimately that's the big picture, isn't it? Yes, does God care about your individual life and raising your children? and do? Yes, and there's all sorts of things in the scripture that are good and, and, and that we need, but we need to have the big picture. We need to celebrate that, that kingdom that we might experience the joy of those things. If you're not a believer in Christ today, Bel- believe it or not, <laughs> we are preaching to you the same gospel that was preached to the Samaritans 2,000 years ago. And 2,000 years or not, you, if you're an unbeliever, you're in the exact same place they were. You are in darkness. The Bible says you are without God in the world dead in your trespasses and sin. But the gospel is the same, that Jesus Christ, God's son, came into the world. He died for sinners. He was buried. He rose the third day so that if you would believe in him, you might have everlasting life. And if God brings that to you, then I pray that that joy of the Lord will just come over you and that your desire will be to identify yourself with Jesus Christ claim him, take him by faith, and as a church, we will celebrate with you. Anybody here ready to celebrate? I, I am, yeah. We'll even baptize you, you know? You make that profession of faith, we'll, 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 it's a lot of work, but we'll get that tank up here and, and we'll get you baptized, and there will be joy. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice and, and we celebrate that your kingdom is advancing And we thank you for men like Philip who just looked at the situation as it was and said, okay, it'll be me, I'll go, I'll do it. And uh, Lord, we pray that we might have a similar heart, that we wouldn't feel like we have to wait on some dream or some vision or for some person to say, hey, you're clearly the one that has to go, but that we would have that heart that just says, Lord, send me, and that we would go. And uh, yeah, give us that, that heart that is willing to celebrate and will celebrate with you. And we pray that if there's a person here today that, that needs you, that, uh, that they would hear the gospel. And Lord, that, that you would bring joy to their heart. It is a joyful message. When it falls on receptive ears, it is just joy unending. And I pray that that, that message would be received and believed and that we would see that, that evidence of conversion and just be able to rejoice with them.